welcome to another week of Diffusion, the peak of your scientific week. My name's Tilly Boleyn and today we have an absolutely jam-packed half an hour of sciencey goodness for you to absorb. A little later we'll be exploring the wonderful worlds of echinoderms and asking some hairy questions. So if you're listening to us in Sydney on 2SER or across Australia on the Community Radio Network or potting us into your ears from anywhere across the globe, sit back and let Jackie Pepper infuse all the latest science news into your mind. Headlining in the world of science news this week, are mutant mice changing our fundamental knowledge of genetic inheritance? New research suggests that DNA, the double-stranded helical structure we believe transmits genetic information from parents to offspring, may receive a helping hand from its single-stranded relative, RNA. French researchers from the University of Nice Sophia Antopoulos have reported their experiments using mutations in mice in the journal Nature. Working with a gene in mice called KIT, whose mutation causes white spots on the tail, the team found interesting deviations from our current understanding of genetic inheritance. After breeding mice with both a normal and mutated kit gene, the team found certain offspring that despite having two normal copies and no mutant copies of the gene, still displayed the white spots that were characteristic of the mutation. Team leader Dr Minot Russell Zagaden did find that the mutation caused a large production of abnormally sized RNA or ribonucleic acid, which was found to accumulate in the mice's sperm. This different RNA also caused white spots after being extracted and injected into fertilised cells, which didn't contain the mutated kit gene. The team now believe that the RNA, which is transferred to the offspring via sperm, causes the mutation by silencing the normal kit gene, changing the gene's expression. While there have been other experiments that suggest RNA can be inherited by offspring, this study has so far produced the best evidence, but more studies need to be done before we completely disregard our current model of genetic inheritance. Could sleeping pills be keeping you up at night? It might for those in a persistent vegetative state, according to Nature.com. Doctors in Britain and South Africa have found that a common sleeping pill, Zolpidem, which is sold under the name of Ambien, is waking up semi-comatose patients for hours at a time. The discovery was made when doctors Ralph Claus of the UK and Wally Nell from South Africa prescribed a patient the sleeping tablets to calm agitated body movements. The patient, however, awoke 15 minutes later. Three patients suffering from head injuries and brain damage have been using the drug now for a number of years and have reported no damaging side effects. Zolpidem acts by promoting the binding of a neurotransmitter called GABA to receptors on brain cells, and this binding causes sleep. Claus hypothesises that those brain cells left after a head injury may be receptive to GABA, causing heightened binding, therefore sending the brain to sleep to prevent further damage. He also believes that the zolpidem may alter the shape of the sensitive brain receptors, releasing the GABA and waking the patients. The pharmaceutical company responsible for zolpidem is now looking at altering the drug to target changing these heightened receptors. Artificially sweetened mixes with alcohol may increase your blood alcohol level. 
According to ABC Science Online, a team from the Royal Adelaide Hospital have studied the difference in alcohol absorption and concentration within the blood between alcoholic drinks using mixes with natural and artificial sweeteners. The study, headed by Dr Chris Rayner, looked at the rate of absorption on eight men. Over a two-day period, one for the consumption of vodka beverages using natural sugar as a sweetener and the other day using a diet mixer with half the calories, the study measured how long it took for the drinks to leave the stomach using an ultrasound, as well as measuring the concentration of alcohol in the body via regular blood samples. They found that it took 36 minutes for half of the sugar-sweetened drinks to leave the stomach, but only 21 minutes for the artificially sweetened beverage. The diet mixes also caused a peak blood alcohol level of 0.05% compared to the 0.03% of the non-diet drinks. Thanks, Jackie. And now here's Lindsay Gray with evidence that some hairs are in fact slow and steady. I've long wished I could braid my eyebrows and, to highlight my eyes, adorn them with shining turquoise spangles. Disappointingly, neither my eyebrows, eyelash, leg, arm or shortened curly hair grows to any stylable lengths. But how come? Why do our head hairs apparently grow endlessly long, but our body hairs seem to know when to stop growing, even though all hair is dead? This perplexing phenomena is a mystery to me no more. The explanation lies at the root of each hair filament. When we were embryos, we each grew about 5 million hair follicles all over our bodies in our skin. We never grow anymore as we age, they just decrease in density as our growing skin stretches. Hair follicles are narrow, tubular pits in our skin's top layer, the epidermis. The bottom of the follicle pit is anchored in the skin's dermis, which is the layer beneath the epidermis. At the base of the hair follicle, there is a small cluster of special dermal cells called the papilla. The papilla is connected to both a network of capillaries that deliver nutrients and oxygen to the hair follicle and a network of nerves that provide touch perception. Overlying the papilla is a thin layer of another type of cell called the matrix. When the papilla cells provide nutrients to the matrix and the matrix cells commence producing the protein keratin, the tough stuff that hair, and interestingly nails, hooves, rhino horns and Port Jackson shark eggs are made from. The construction of a single filament of hair begins when a hair follicle enters what's called the growth phase. The papilla begins supplying nutrients to the matrix and for as long as it's receiving nutrients, the matrix cells will synthesise hair keratin. The keratin is produced as a round layer on the surface of the matrix. As soon as one layer is complete, another will be produced beneath it, leading to upwards lengthening of the hair through the skin's surface and beyond. The rate at which your matrix cells create keratin determines the rate at which your hair grows, and for humans this is generally about half a millimetre per day. A follicle will continue making hair until it enters what's called the resting phase. The papilla ceases to provide the matrix with nutrients, and the base of the newly formed hair detaches from the matrix and migrates away from the follicle base about halfway up the follicle tube. 
The hair will remain in this position, carrying out the jobs it was created for, like collecting sensory information, providing insulation and helping you to look pretty, until about halfway through the follicle's next growth phase, where the new hair, which is growing upwards towards the base of the old hair, causes the shedding of the old hair by pushing it out of the follicle. The duration of each follicle's growth and resting phases depends upon the follicle's location on the body and the genetic instructions follicles in that bodily location follow. Though it seems human head hair never stops growing, each of us has a genetically determined growth phase time period for our scalp follicles. Some people with long scalp follicle growth phases can grow hair to the ground. Others with short growth phases grow hair to just beyond their shoulders. For most humans, the scalp growth phase is between 5 and 10 years. The resting phase for head hair is conversely very short, and unless you're about to start suffering from baldness, just underneath each of your fully grown hairs is another hair filament waiting in the follicle to emerge as a replacement. Our scalp hair follicles are actually quite unusual in having such lengthy growth phases though. The duration of both resting and growth phases elsewhere in the body is dependent upon the follicle's location and the function of bodily hair in that area. For example, arm hairs, leg hairs, eyelashes and eyebrows all have very short growing phases. That's why the hairs aren't long. These hairs also have a reasonably long resting phase, and that's why we're not shedding our arm and leg hairs constantly. Imagine the carpet of little hairs that would build up everywhere. Blech. This all explains a related phenomena. How is it that body hairs, when shaved off and not pulled out, can magically grow back to their natural full length? Well, I'm sorry to say that your underarm hairs aren't magic. Each shaved off hair continues to grow outwards from the skin for the remainder of the growth phase that it was already undergoing. It then enters the resting phase and sits in the skin with its stubby end poking out until the next growth phase when the freshly formed underlying hair forces it to drop off. Many mammals that live in climates with very variable seasonal weather can coordinate the timing of their follicle growth and resting phases to coincide with changes in their habitat's temperature. They can molt. Molting mammals' follicles are doubly special in that they can coordinate their behaviour bodily-wide and can produce different kinds of hair. For example, as winter approaches, my dog Gemma has follicles that begin a growth phase that produces lots of short and fluffy hairs. These serve to keep her warm. By mid-spring, though, these follicles cease their winter-long resting phase and commence growing back her sleek summer coat. And finally, you'll be pleased to know that both your hair and your pet's hair is good for the compost because hair is full of protein. Thank you, Lindsay. We've been splitting hairs over those issues for years. Still to come on Diffusion Science Radio, the weird world of echinoderms. But now, sit back and relax to Nostalgia 77 with Seven Nation Army. Now, you know, do you still expect a break? Sure, I expect a break. I'm gonna fight no more. A seven nation army couldn't hold me back. They're gonna rip it up. Taking their time right behind. 
What do starfish, sea urchins, sea cucumbers and crinoids all have in common, apart from living in the sea? Well, they all belong to the animal phylum Echinodermata, which makes them echinoderms. So what's so special about echinoderms? Well, not much if you don't count the ability to be cut in two and then regenerate two copies of yourself from the two halves, or the ability to get through life without a head. Lachlan Watmore explains. The human species being part of the animal kingdom has a long lost cousin. The funny thing is these unspoken of relatives of ours have been living right on our coastline and in our seas, yet we haven't really acknowledged them yet. They include starfish, sea urchins, sea cucumbers, feather stars, brittle stars and the recently discovered sea daisies. Collectively, our beautiful and downright weird kin are called the phylum Echinodermata. Weird? Yes, they are weird. Echinoderms don't have heads. They have no sides, no top and no bottom, just a front and a back that are actually orientated down and up, just to confuse you. And the front and the back aren't called the front and the back. Oh no, they're called the oral surface and the aboral surface. If you think of a starfish, the oral surface is on the sand and the aboral surface is facing up. You all got that? That's good, because I'm still confused. Echinoderms are so named because of their skins. They mostly have a tough, spiny outer surface, most dramatically shown by those balls of spikes called sea urchins and that walking carpet of grey needles called the crown of thorns starfish. Along with that, echinoderms have one of the most unique symmetries of all the animals. An animal's symmetry is the way its body is balanced. For example, we humans are bilaterally symmetrical like many other animals. If you slice us in two, right down the middle, you'll have two mirror image halves. Other creatures, like sea anemones, are radially symmetrical. They are basically cylindrical or conical and can therefore be bisected along many planes to produce two mirror halves. However, echinoderms have a pentamerous radial symmetry. This means that their bodies reach out into five radial points, like a five-pointed star. This is most obvious in starfish, of course, but can also be found in sea urchins, where the aboral surface, containing the spines, has spread out five tough plates to completely enclose the animal, reducing the oral surface to just the mouth. And the list of weird things about echinoderms goes on. They've evolved a unique water vascular system, a hydraulic network of tubes and canals that perform a variety of tasks. If you place a starfish on a plate of glass and put it in a nice, comfortable aquarium, the starfish will show you its tube feet as it walks around. These are tiny little hydraulic limbs that appear from its oral surface like small tentacles, coordinating with a radial nerve net and drawing fluid from a radial water canal. Some species have hundreds of them, some specialised for burrowing, some with complex adherent chemicals for fast locomotion, and some suckered, like the tentacles of an octopus. So how could such a strange collection of animals even be remotely related to us? At least snails and insects have heads, not to mention backsides. Well, speaking of backsides, the animal kingdom can be roughly divided into two. Some phyla of animals such as mollusks, segmented worms and insects in their kin are called protostomes. This means that when they are embryos, their mouth develops before their anus. Other phyla of animals are called deuterostomes. When they are embryos, their anus develops before their mouth. 
this may not seem very significant. In fact, it might seem quite disgusting, but embryology can give a lot of clues as to which groups of animals are related to which other ones. Whether or not you grow first your gob or your asshole places you into one of these two groups and indicates which phyla are more closely related to yours. We humans are chordates. We belong to phylum chordata. Chordates are deuterostomes. As embryos, we have an anus before we have a mouth. There are relatively few other deuterostome phyla, but one of them is echinodermata. The echinoderms share this particular embryological pathway with us, unlike a large majority of other phyla, which indicates that we and our spiny cousins had a common ancestor. So what did this ancestor look like? It's very hard to say. It certainly lived in the sea, was probably bilaterally symmetrical like us, and possessed a nerve cord running down its back. This would have been the basis for the chordate and later vertebrate body plans. However, from this parent stock would have come a line that would have undergone enormous modification and specialization, evolving a more circular nervous system, and the loss of anterior cephalization, or in other words, a head. The sense organs would become more evenly spread throughout the rest of the body due to the adaptation of a more radial symmetry, and without a front end or a back end, the need for a head would disappear. So next time you're walking around the rocks at the beach and you see a starfish, a sea urchin, or just an interesting sea cucumber, don't forget to say, hi cousin. And that was Lachlan Watmore with The Weird World of Echinoderms. to diffusion. And sadly, it's time to say goodbye from all of us here at Team Diffusion. If you'd like more information on any of the stories we've featured today, if you want to know what my favourite colour is, or if you'd like to tell us what you did in the school holidays, send us an email diffusion at 2ser.com. The voices that tantalised your ears this week were Jackie Peffer, Lindsay Gray and Lachlan Watmore. Diffusion was produced and recorded by myself this week in the sumptuous studios of 2SER in Sydney. Diffusion is broadcast nationally via the Community Radio Network and all over the world through our podcast. You can search and subscribe to Diffusion on iTunes or at feeds.feedburner.com. 
The song taking you out today is Breathe Me by Sire. I'm Tilly Boleyn and I hope you'll join us next week for more fantastically fabulous science on Diffusion. Um.